Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage of the French Open begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome back to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to Melvin Burgess. Melvin won the Carnegie Medal for Junk, a novel about heroin use in Bristol, and he wrote it for teenagers. It's recognised as one of the best young adult books of all time. We talk about what you do when you've spent ages working on something that turns out to be not quite good enough. Also, you can hear about the strange badge of honour that he prides himself on. And we learn why he's returned to writing after a little break. Um, and, but recently I've kind of found my, my mojo again, I feel. So, uh, but I don't feel, um, I don't feel obliged to, uh, to sort of, you know, go charging ahead. I don't feel obliged to do a novel a year or even a novel every two years. Um, I, I tend to take my time. I pick the projects that I really want to do. I've got a bit of a space around me now. I don't feel as though I necessarily need to do this. I do it because, um, you know, I want to do it. It's nice to return to that position where you're sort of doing it because you want to do it. There is more with Melvin Burgess in this week's Writer's Routine. Ahoy, welcome to the show. My name is Dan Simpson. This is Writer's Routine, where we take a look very simply inside the working day of some of the most successful authors around. And it's Melvin Burgess on the show this week. Uh, He's written many books. A lot of them were through the 90s and noughties. He cracked them out ferociously. And now, with his family life more settled and his kids a little bit older, uh, he's taken a break. And he's back with his first novel for adults. Although, as you'll hear in the chat, that description maybe isn't quite as fitting as it should be. Uh, It's called Loki. It's all about the politics of Asgard. It's a heartfelt plea to overthrow the gods of power and authority. We talk about the idea for the book and why it was partly inspired by recent politics and how he was interested in the process of powers lying. Now, Melvin reached his first kind of big success, really, with junk. As I mentioned, it was for teenagers and it looked at drug use in Bristol. It won the Carnegie Medal, which is an award here in the UK for outstanding books for children and teens. We talk about why he chose to, to focus on such a, a, an extreme, serious, heavy subject in a book for young adults. We run through that. Also, you can hear the strange badge of honour to do with that book that he prides himself on. We talk about success too. You'll hear in a question that I don't think I've ever asked anyone else. 
you see, Melvin, as you'll gather, is quite good at enjoying himself at the moment. He's taken quite a few years off. Would he still have kept that same leisurely working schedule if he hadn't have had that success? Would he have kept on going all those years ago or might he have been forced to find something else to do? Also, um, if you're interested in writing for teens and kids and maybe you're struggling to find the right tone, I know that can happen certainly with me. Um, There is honestly the best description and advice I've ever heard on how you do it. It's really amazing how succinctly he sums that up. So stick around for that. Oh, and quickly, I should warn you, there's a little bit of swearing in this week's episode. So if you're listening in the car with kids or something, just pay attention to that as we jump into it, as we always do with what Melvin Burgess sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. Um, well, I'm sitting in the um, in our sort of dining room and I've got a dining sort of uh, kitchen. I have got a, um, a, uh, a shed down the garden, but it's cold and Anita's out. So I'm up here and I can look out the window and see the hills. I'm in the in the in the West Yorkshire Pennines. So I've got lovely long views out to the hills, past the woods, over the fields. I can see my my pond, my new pond out the garden, which I'm very proud of. And um, here there's, um, you know, the, the table. We've got some yellow roses out. There's a Christmas cactus in bloom. Uh, the washing's hanging from the ceiling. <laughs> it dries very quickly up there. And we've got this new uh, chandelier, which is sort of like... Um, I mean, I say chandelier. It's a really weird thing. It's 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 sort of cast iron, and it's got grapevines and grapes hanging from it. So yes, that's my view, and I can see the bird feeder out out, out in the front. That's almost contrasting, isn't it? You've got your washing hanging up there, and also uh, a massive ornate chandelier come light. Yes, well, um, it is a bit of a contrast. It's a sort of a kitchen diner. It's a big sort of a converted barn really well it's not a big converted barn but it's it's got a high roof and uh, this this uh, this chandelier thing i mean you'd have to call it a chandelier because it's uh, um it's a sort of lights and it's it's got about nine sort of cast glass bunches of grapes which for the lights and then it's uh, it's got these sort of cast iron uh, vine leaves colored sort of i don't know like autumnal colors so it's quite a, a sort of uh, much more rough and ready than the word chandelier. There's no crystal involved here, okay? <laughs> as for the washing hanging from the ceiling, well, you know, we've got one of those racks. And as I say, it's, a, uh, it's not a ceilinged house. It's, it's got a pitched roof, uh, which goes right up to the top. So uh, when you wind your, um, your washing up there, it's dry in about a few hours, really. Because it's hot up there. Very useful at the moment as well. Uh, so you're, you're in your you're in you're in your uh, kind of grand kitchen come diner now. You mentioned the shed. Where do you get most of your writing done? Uh, most of it's most of it's down in, in the sheds. I mean, we've only been here at three years, and um, um, we had a lot of building work done on it. And one of the building works we did, we, we sort of there's a there's a slope at the bottom of the garden which we had dug out, and we had a couple of. Um, a couple of sort of writing sheds put up. So most of it tends to happen down there. Um, the reason why I'm up here is because um, Anita's gone, walked down the hill for a daily cup of coffee. It's my missus. And um, so it's warm up here and I'd have to go down and heat it all up. I've just come back from um, an interrailing holiday in uh, Spain and France. And um, so I haven't actually sort of started, restarted my writing yet. I'm doing sort of stuff for Loki and, um, you know, getting getting back into the mode and all the rest of it. 
yeah, kind of recompressing. When, when you're down in the shed, it's interesting. You, you've you you had the ability to. You, you know what you do. You know where you're moving, so you can purpose build a writing shed. I guess. What what did you want in it when you were making it? What did you feel rather? Well, well, it's it's not as such purpose built because what you do when you're getting one of these things is have a look and see what's available. You know, and uh, they can be very expensive. These ones were quite a good deal. It's um, it's kind of described as a log cabin because it's sort of thick planks which are sort of jointed like a log cabin, so you've got them sort of sticking out at the ends. And I thought we were just going to have this um, this slope dug out, and I was going to get a little a little shed down there. But Anita decided she wanted one, and that we were both going to have quite big ones. So I've got quite a big space, much bigger than anything I've had before. And um, I've got a little writing corner, and I'm a big sort of a wildlife nut. Okay, so I've got. You know, all my nature books. I've got my bookcases down there, and you know, my, my my a lot of my reading books down there. And I've got a sort of bench with my microscope on it, and my various bits and pieces that I sometimes, you know, identification, you know, charts and that sort of thing for butterflies and dragonflies and stuff. So you know, it's quite quite it's quite a dual purpose space down there. It's, it's bigger bigger than anything I've had before. But it does get very cold down there at this time of year, you know. So you don't go down there if there's if the house is empty. When you were thinking about where you would write in your um, bigger uh, shed than you've had before, you've got the wildlife going on. When you were thinking about the place that you would write in, what did you feel you needed to have around you? Are you someone that is quite close to the traditions of how you've written before or are you able to just like plonk yourself down and just crack on? Um, I like to sit with a view out the window. I cannot abide uh, to sit staring at a wall. So there has to be a window there. Um, I'm, I'm a person with quite a short attention span. So um, I need to have sort of frequent little breaks, just whether it's to gaze out the window, you know, whatever it is, have a cup of tea, faff around go <laughs> go for a little walk gazing out the window is quite important for me um uh so you know really but really i don't require that much more than that so you know in the past i have been able to sit in in rooms which uh, uh looked as though a collection of banshees have destroyed them uh, so long as i'm sitting looking out of the window i'm fine uh so uh, it's that sort of thing and the only other thing i like i do like uh, some music um Something um, not too not too tuneful. I mean, Bach's very good to work to. Something sort of going on, you know. Uh, I, I like that. But if I can have music and I can have a view out the window and I'm not freezing cold or too hot, I'm happy. D- uh, d- d- does the music need to be lyricless? Um, it doesn't have to be lyricless. I can listen to sort of choral works and stuff, um, and I can listen to sort of dreamy stuff. I could listen to, uh, but what it doesn't want to do is it's sort of you know, impinge on you too much. I do, uh, I do love, love Baroque music. Uh, so I listen to quite a lot of that. And the wonderful thing about Baroque music is you can have it sort of babbling on and it, it isn't like, like a, I don't know, a Beatles tune or the Rolling Stones or rock and roll or blues or even, or, you know, classically sort of Beethoven and something like that, which kind of grabs your attention. You have to get into a meditative state to enjoy something like Bach uh, so you know, uh, it's it's good to have it going on in the background. So yeah, I don't want to have anything which is uh, impinging too much on my on my brain. Something, nothing which shakes me out of my uh, my focus. 
What is there practical around you for your writing? Is there notepads or post-it notes, anything to jog your memory of where you're going? I don't tend to use post-it notes. Um, I, um, I usually have a sort of a notepad, although the notepad is usually lists of things that I have to do after I've finished writing, to be honest. But I sometimes have a writing list to remind me of stuff going back when I'm, when I'm editing. Um, I will often make, I mean, I do all the writing on a, you know, uh, a laptop. So I can make notes actually in the document that I'm working on. So I just really require a, you know, a little table of the right height and a comfortable chair. And that's about it, really. I tend to wake up quite early and sort of lie in bed for a bit, um, w- waking up slowly. Um, I will, I mean, the routine isn't always exactly the same. Um, but by and large, I'll sort of get up. Um, I will often, I've got sort of um, some sort of stretches that I do. I do Qigong, you know, um, so I, I will quite often spend some time doing that. But if I'm, um, if I'm really keen to be getting on and I've really got it on my mind and it's chasing me, then I will skip that and try and put it on later in the day. So, you know, get up. I might do a bit of uh, exercise, uh, these Qigong things and these stretches. Um, I'll nearly always have breakfast first. Um, that's a habit that I acquired because my, my wife, Anita, um, um, I mean, she's doing quite a lot of work at home these days, but when she was going out to work, you know, having breakfast together was a thing you could do before uh, she went away, you know. So it's a sort of point of contact. So if you just get straight down to it, then you're immediately doing separate things as soon as the day starts. So I'll have breakfast to start, um, and then I will saunter down to the uh, the office, to the shed down at the bottom of the garden, and I'll uh, I'll get on with it. Really is as simple as that. How, how long do you find yourself working for of a day, Melvin? Um, I have, throughout my writing life, I've uh, always tried to avoid... <laughs> Working in the afternoons, <laughs> my brain gets tired. Writing, I mean, the, sort of the actual creative bit of writing, when you're doing the first and second drafts and this sort of stuff, is, is tiring, actually. Strange to relate. And um, much past sort of midday, you know, then I find that the, the quality of what I'm doing and my connection with what I'm doing tends to go down quite steeply. You sometimes get a second wind, late in the afternoon. But by and large, you know, it'll start any time from sort of half seven to nine, um, and it's it, it, it won't last longer than about um, three or four hours at the most, including um, a sort of bit of a break in the middle. So uh, I, I, if, if I do four hours, that's quite a long day for me. Uh, and usually it's more like three. Is, is there an aim for those three or four hours? Are you sat there, some people... Uh, work to a word count others are just doing it you know to a, a point in the story or where they feel their motivation's running out is there i guess how do you know when you're done i get bored <laughs> in a place <laughs> when i can't concentrate it anymore it's um i want my brain sort of flagging a bit you know um i don't i don't do a word count I do write quite quickly, you know, once, once it's going, it kind of, it does move quite quickly. So I do get quite a lot done. And although I, I, I have relatively short days, I, I do get quite a bit done in that time. Um, it's difficult to make a steadfast rule for this because um, sometimes 
it's a struggle and sometimes it comes easy. And there's no point if you're struggling to sort of just sit there until you've done your, your 2,000 words or your 1,000 words or whatever. Um, uh, then, you know, editing can take um, – editing is by and large easier as, as the book – nears completion it gets easier and it's more fun you know and it, it towards the end it's a bit like sort of breathing on it and giving it a quick polish you know and that's that's a great pleasure um early on it, it can be quite hard um so oh god i'm rambling aren't i what, what was the question no then? no Again, no that, that's the point it? it's are you <clears throat> excuse me uh how, how do you know when you're done you mentioned you were bored like what, what, what how do i know when i'm done yeah, I know. I, I just sort of think, oh, right, that's it. I'm fed up with this. My brain's getting tired. It, it, it'll be usually at a point in the story. Um, do you know, uh, my dad um, used to write uh, educational materials, and uh, I remember him saying to me that he always um, left his work knowing what he was going to do next so that you didn't sort of sit down and think, oh, God, you know, what, what, what am I going to do now? And that's a good piece of advice. I don't um, – so I, I do generally know more or less where I'm going to go. I do more or less know what I'm going to do next. Not very specifically. I don't plan in any detail. I tend to regard writing as, as a performance in the sense that you're sort of ad-libbing, aren't you, and you're, you're, you're doing it off the top of your head. So I have a general direction, but the – or, you know, it might be two characters meeting. It might be, you know, I've got a general idea of what I want to, to do in, in that scene, but by and large, um, I don't know how I'm going to go about it, and I let the, the characters and the action sort of develop themselves. Um, and when I come to the end of that and I'm sort of not quite sure how it's going to go next, that's the point when I'll, when I'll stop. Um, if that happens after about an hour, an hour and a half, I might go for a walk, a little short walk. I might have a bath. I might do something like that. I tend to regard writing as being, um, you know, a, a sort of work in cooperation with your own unconscious. And I try and let um, decisions about what's going to come and how it's going to work happen, um, you know, uh, without me thinking about it too much. If you know that's happening, I guess, how conscious is that thought? So in the afternoon, maybe when you are walking or you're at your leisure, how much are you like forcing through thoughts? Are you pondering on things or are you perfectly happy to just get on with your day, whatever's happening in that afternoon and just keep your fingers crossed that it's all being worked out there somewhere? Um, I am quite happy to get on in my day. Um, as for keeping your fingers crossed, it isn't really a case of keeping your fingers crossed, you know. I suppose the best, uh, as I say, it is a question of um, um, learning how to work with your own um, unconscious processes because that's really where the magic happens, isn't it? That's where the ideas occur. That's where the links happen. You know, you don't sit and work them out as if it were a mathematical problem. Um, so a good illustration of that would be sometimes I would um, – I'd sort of do do an hour or so or a couple of hours and then I'd not be quite sure how to proceed. So I would go and have a bath, okay? Before I'd get in the bath, I'd have a think about what I wanted to do. And then I'd lie in the bath and sort of soak and, you know, float around a bit. And then just before I'd get out, I'd have another think. And there would always be um, a, a solution or an idea there. So that's simply a question of, you know, you, you, you sort of just train yourself to um, and you train your, um, your unconscious mind to, to do the work for you. <laughs> Sounds very lazy, doesn't it? <laughs> and indeed, it's some of it is, but then you have to go and do it, of course. So, you know, it isn't a question of keeping your fingers crossed. It's a question of um, trusting your, um, your imagination, your unconscious imagination to come up with some, come up with the goods.
How relentlessly are you going at it? Are you a seven days a week person? Five, three? What, what do you give to it? Do you know, when I, um, when I began writing, I, I, I decided quite early on, that although I sort of loved it very much and I was quite ambitious for it as well, um, that I didn't want it to be the most important thing in my life and that I feel that the sort of people in your life and the relationships you have have to be more important. Otherwise, you know, where are you? And um, as a result, um, you know, uh, me and my, uh, my my wife, you know, we make time for one another. She works during the week, um, so weekends are her time off. So I tend to have weekends off. Sometimes she's got a very demanding job. And sometimes, you know, she needs to do stuff. So I might do little bits and pieces. But, yeah, by and large, I'm happy to um, I'm happy to sort of do, you know, four or five days a week, something like that. Are you all right for me to ask you a hypothetical question that I have never asked anyone else before? I'm OK for you to ask me whatever you like. So you, you mentioned there that you're happy to work four or five days a week. You were perfectly, you, you made a decision early on that you weren't going to, although writing is what you wanted to do, you weren't going to let it consume every facet of your life. Now you have enjoyed some success along the way doing that. I'm, I'm just conscious that maybe other people writing uh, and listening haven't had the success that you have had along the way. Do you think if if that hadn't have happened, if you hadn't have won awards and sold many books, that you would still be as, as comfortable with the leisurely aspect of writing that you are? Would you have pushed on and, and written relentlessly seven days a week? Would you have given up and tried something else perhaps? I'm just, just picking your brain there. Um, I don't know. You know, when I, um, when I decided, I mean, when I left school, I did have a very brief job uh, training as a journalist and I decided I'd pack it in because I wanted to write books. And I was very aware that it was a very uh, high risk strategy, <laughs> a very high risk strategy, you know. And um, by the time I was in my 30s, I still hadn't had anything published. And I was thinking, you know, well, you know, if, if something doesn't give soon, I'm going to have to give this up. And uh, but um, something did give, and um, you know my, my my career started. So, so in that sense, you know I have been very lucky. But um, no, I mean you know I I, I I wouldn't have gone banging my head against a brick wall. I, I would have had to pack it in. I might have kept returning to it. By and large, you know, uh, with writing, it isn't always the people who have the big flashy skills that make it. It is the people who don't give up. Um, so. You know, I might, I, I would have probably kept returning to it, but I think the secret is much more to keep returning to it rather than sort of beat your head against a brick wall. I don't, I mean, I, I mentioned sort of working in, in conjunction with your um, imagination, with your unconscious imagination. And uh, you don't do that by focusing more and more and thinking harder and harder and becoming more and more relentless. I know some people do like um, to sort of lock themselves away and, um, and work like maniacs for three or four days. Um, but, you know, they're really working in conjunction uh, with their imaginations as well, because they're kind of, you know, leaving the space all around those very intense periods uh, for, 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 for their minds to sort of work out the problems for them, so to speak. So I don't think I would have become um, frantic at it. Uh, I think if I'd have become frantic at it, that would have been disastrous. <laughs> we... Um... We get quite niche and perhaps nerdy on the show. Uh, how, how much thought do you give to what you're writing on and like what font you use? Is that something that you give much attention to? Or um, Yes, I do uh, think about that. Um, um, 
What font do I use? Actually, I'm not actually on the computer that I use for writing on, basically because um, this basically because the the one I'm writing on is uh, pretty crap when it comes to uh, doing uh, doing this sort of thing. Oh, it's quite a nice font actually. It's um, oh god, where is it? I've got I, I'm using um, uh, WordPress and. Uh, I'm not quite sure where it says what the bloody font is. Oh, there it is. Calibri. Calibri. I have used Vadina. I have used Vadina in the past, and I used Arial at one point, but it's uh, Calibri is, is nice and plain and clear, and I like that very much. When I started, um, you know, there were small children around. My partner was, um, was a dancer, and she was away quite a lot, so we kind of took it in turns looking after the kids and doing our work. So, you know, you'd, you'd have a period of childcare, you'd have a period of writing. Um, later on, um, you know, um, I, I separated and I was kind of the breadwinner, and I think I sort of felt as though I had to keep banging them out then, so I was pretty constantly at it. And when that period came to the end, I, I was actually, I think, getting a bit sick of the whole thing, really. I think I kind of just... Uh, had done too much. And I was seriously thinking about it, it was time to pack in, really. Um, and I think probably with YA as well, I was sort of thinking, oh, God, you know, I've done, I don't know whether I've got anything else to say about being, uh, being a teenager. Um, so there was quite a long period in which, you know, I was writing, but it wasn't really getting anywhere. And, you know, I was sort of thinking, oh, you know, I don't know. Um, and, but recently I've kind of found my, my mojo again, I feel. So, uh, but I don't feel um, I don't feel obliged to uh, to sort of you know go charging ahead. I don't feel obliged to do a novel a year or even a novel every two years. Um, I, I tend to take my time. I pick the projects that I really want to do. I've got a bit of a space around me now. I don't feel as though I necessarily need to do this. I do it because um, you know I want to do it. It's nice to return to that position where you're sort of doing it because you want to do it. So um, it, that it's given me a, a nice lifestyle, uh, as as you might have gathered. You know, I haven't had to, you know, I, I haven't really had to hammer myself. But there was that period when I was sort of feeling as though I had to churn it out. I'm very pleased that that's behind me and uh, that I've, I've got the space now. So I mean, you know, as I say, my my, my, my wife works, and uh, so she's sort of off most mornings, and. Um, there's, there is an element of sort of thinking, well, do you know, I don't know, if she was retired, say, then um, I, I might do quite a bit less because um, I'd have someone to sort of hang out with, you know. But as it is, I go and see friends quite a lot and I've got quite a lot of activities and things that I do. But um, um, so, yeah, you know, I, I do sort of put one away and then start thinking and then sort of gradually move towards the next one. But I do have chunks. I've, I've just had a month away. If I finish a book, I'll, I'll quite often, like if I, were to, if I were to finish a book round about now, I'd probably be thinking, well, I'll try and start the next one after Christmas. <laughs> that sort of thing. You know, I, I don't feel in a hurry. I feel as though, I feel as though, I feel as though, to be honest, that my work suffered through sort of being too sort of constant at it. So I'm keen to lose, to leave space around my books now. That's interesting. The um, I think we'll get to that when we talk about Loki in just a second. That that spark when you suddenly thought, "Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna tackle this again." I just just very quickly, I think. Well, myself definitely, and many others listening uh, uh, might be quite jealous of your ability to be fine at leisure. I think there's quite a 
there's maybe a culture around at the moment where a lot of people feel they need to be they need to be working they need to be working they can't they can't let themselves relax because other people are getting ahead whereas you seem to be perfectly fine with just taking your time knowing you'll get to it and enjoying yourself to a degree well this is true i mean i i, I am lucky you know i mean i've I, you know i've had my career um anything that i do now is a bonus i, I you know financially I, I i'm in a position where i don't really need to uh you know bang away which has been the position in the past so i, I have that space around me and um uh, of course i take advantage of it so you know why wouldn't you <laughs> i mean i could i could sort of retire you know but i mean as they say writers don't retire they just sort of i don't know <laughs> produce worse worse and worse books <laughs> they just slow down a bit so you know i mean i'm i'm i'm, uh, I'm 68 um and um you know i'm very much enjoying my writing at the moment um so so you know i haven't got any reason to stop it but i don't feel you know i haven't got any any reason to sort of bang my head against the brick wall I, i'm i'm you know there are things that i really want to do i'm i'm still have have sort of i have some ambitious projects sort of bubbling away there um because there's not much point in doing this if it's not sort of stretching you i've never been someone who's enjoyed doing the same thing over and over again so i'm uh, I, I i'm very happy to be doing that but um um and I'll tell you as well, it did take me a little time to get to the point because I was so used to sort of thinking, right, what's the next one? Oh, you know, I've got to make sure that the next one's there. That, um, I, you know, I started to become a little bit anxious if I was away from it. So it has taken me a little time to sort of let go and, and relax back into it and allow it to find its own pace. At, at that point, you were mentioning where you were banging out the books um, and you said you were falling out of love with it slightly. How hard was it then for you? If, if now you're at a point where you're happy and excited to get to work at the back end of maybe the, the, the tougher days, for want of a better phrase, how hard was it to sit there and you know, get writing? Well, I mean, you know, to be honest with you, it's always enjoyable to write something. And, um, you know, I have been fairly consistently writing something, you know, and then, um, you know, during the tough days, there's that awful realization that you've just produced a bag of shit. <laughs> and, then, and then you're sort of like, oh, Christ alive, you know, <laughs> well, yeah, this is it. And you send it off and your agent and your publisher are sort of rather polite about it. But they're saying, well, you know, and you sort of think, oh, God, you know, I've spent, I mean, because, you know, novels, it's long form. You can spend a year, you can spend 18 months doing it. I should think the worst thing I ever did was spend 18 months on something and, and nobody wanted it. And I looked at it and it was, you know, rubbish. So, um, so yeah, you know, so that's pretty bad. And then you're sort of thinking, oh God, you know, I don't know why I'm doing this, but, um, uh, you know, so I suppose, I suppose uh, peculiar, I am driven. Otherwise I would have stopped, aren't I? But I'm, I'm driven, I'm driven at a slow pace down with lots of stops en route. <laughs> <laughs> um, just let's quickly talk about, uh, junk for a second. I know that you would have answered probably every question under the sun about this book. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just interested. No, no problem, no problem. Many, many people write YA fiction, and quite a lot of it is fo might be focused on fantasy, magic, or teenage spies. Why was it important for you to write something so real and touched on social issues? I, I mean, you know, writing a novel about heroin use in teenagers. It isn't something that everyone would think of. Why was that important for you to tell that story? Uh, well, um, 
you have to remember that when junk came out, YA fiction didn't really exist as such in this country. And um, it was it was a very new genre elsewhere. Um, and if, if you, I mean, books were being published, which would have to say, you know, 14 plus or 16 plus on the cover. But when you read them, they were uniformly more suitable for, um, you know, people aged sort of more like 11 or 12. And they didn't really deal with these issues in the way that um, someone who was 14, 15 or 16 would think about it and would engage with it. Um, and that's, peculiar sort of dominance that certain gatekeepers um, had over over young people's fiction um, really meant that um, that YA fiction didn't exist because if you were a teenager you'd pick up a book sort of for for, for you at 15 and, and you'd think actually you know it's got nothing to do with me at all it was um, it was even even the realist stuff for 15 year olds was 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 like a sort of fantasy thing and um, this was Partly because, you know, YA grew out of children's books and there's a lot of gatekeepers. There's a lot of people worrying about what's suitable for children, worrying about what should happen for children. And um, you know what it's like when you're a kid, everyone's saying, oh, you know, grow up. You're a big boy now. You know, you've got to act your age in this until you get to sort of puberty. Then everyone wants you to slow down <laughs> you know, and they don't want you to sort of get involved in, in sex or, you know, any kind of adult pleasures. They want you to stay a child. So um, as a result, and, and because of the dominance of those particular gatekeepers who have a certain sort of moral position on this, in that um, what you present to children isn't about what's useful to them and their lives, but what you think is suitable for them. Okay. And as a result, um, teenage fiction had never really existed. It hadn't really taken off. And um, it was it was just um, sort of fairy tales, really. So uh, because some of my early books had been... Um, quite hard hitting. Uh, my publisher suggested I do something about drugs, and I sort of had a look at what was available. And most of it, not all of it. I mean, Aidan Chambers was writing some very um, book books for really quite older teenagers, quite clearly. But uh, most of it, as I say, was just um, you know uh, nonsense. And I thought, okay, you know, I will write a book about drugs, but I know about this stuff. You know, I've done it, and I've 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 lived it. And you know, when I was when I was at high school. Um, you know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones were having a good time on drugs and, you know, all the police and the teachers were telling you how deadly it was. But, you know, so there was all these contradictions going on. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll write the book that I wish I read when I was 16. So it was a book actually genuinely for people of 15 and 16. So that's why there was a big fuss about it, because everyone was thinking uh, though it was a children's book, it wasn't. It was a book for teenagers, and that's why it's um, it's remembered so well because it was so early in the history of YA. So that's why it was important. It was just sort of you know everyone was everyone was talking about the teenage market at that point, but everyone was kind of scared of really engaging with it because as soon as you started you know talking about uh, sex or drugs and rock and roll to people of fifteen who are quite a lot of them, I mean, not all of them, but quite a lot of them interested in those subjects, <laughs> then um, immediately everyone would be sort of up in arms. So uh, so out it came. And it was the right time for it. Um, you know, there was sort of fuss about it, but it was mainly in the tabloid press. The kids liked it. The A lot of the, um, the teachers, um, the librarians, the people who worked with young people liked it because it was actually a genuine resource for them rather than uh, – Rather than a sort of just say no piece of piece of fantasy, I, I took the position that um, uh, you know it's all very well just say no, but what about the, what about the people who have said yes? 
They deserve books too. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We're back with more from Melvin in just a sec. If you're enjoying the show, if you've learned anything so far that has helped the way that you write, if you think it, it, it might give you tips to improve how you plan your day, uh, you can say thank you to us for that, I guess, by supporting the show at Patreon. You can pledge, become a backer, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. It helps us keep bringing you these chats, bringing you these chats with the best authors around as often as we can. For that, just a small amount every month, a tiny amount really helps us keep going. You get our eternal thanks, you get merch, there's bonus content, there is even a way for your book to sponsor this show. And you can rest easy if you really enjoy the podcast knowing that you're just doing like a little bit to help us carry on. I mean, if you're listening, that's doing enough. But if you'd like to just push it a bit further, give a bit more. I'm British, so I'm aware how awkward this is for me to be uh, (laughs) pushing this a little bit. Just help out the show. It really, really goes a long way, I promise. And I know times are tight, so anything you can spare... I am very, very appreciative of. Just become a backer. Pledge to support the show at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back to it then with Melvin Burgess talking about his new novel, Loki. We talk about the inspiration and the process for the novel. Also, why a trip back to school really helped solidify the idea for this story. And we jump back into it, just quickly talking about writing for teens again. I often wonder... Because I'm going through this a bit myself. When when you start out writing and you are an adult, why choose to focus your storytelling talents on people who are much younger than you, who speak in a completely different way to you? Why did Melvin decide to do that? Well, I had started writing for um, um, what you might call older children. I mean, you know, my earlier books like The Cry of the Wolf and The Baby and Fly Pie and so forth were really written for for people, I mean, I thought it would be sort of upper primary, but in fact, it turned out to be sort of lower, lower high school, uh, kids aged sort of eleven and twelve, and that sort of thing. Uh, but often, those books did have fourteen plus on the front. You know, I remember the first time I went to do a talk in a school with the Cry of the Wolf, which had you know sort of only suitable for fourteen plus on the front, and there I was presenting it to eleven-year-olds. You know, 
and I thought, oh, so it's actually complete cobblers, <laughs> you know, all this stuff that you're 14, you know, um, because, um, you know, it was just a kind of advertising gimmick, you know. So you're 11 and you're reading a book which says 14 plus on the front. You, you feel pretty cool and your parents think you're pretty cool as well. So, uh, you know, so it works like that. Um, and so when my publisher, Klaus Fluger at Anderson Press, suggested um, doing something for teenagers, you know, I thought, okay, you know, I'll do a book actually for teenagers about this subject. And um, the reason why I went for it after that was, was because, contrary to everyone's expectations, it was very, very successful. You know, I mean, I think uh, uh, Puffin did a little bit of research beforehand, and the librarians generally thought that it was a fine book, but that it would probably just languish on the shelves because no one would want to go near it because of its, uh, its subject matter. But, you know, on the contrary... Um, you know, it flew off the shelves. And for a long time, it was the most stolen book in libraries, which I, I regarded as a great badge of honour. And, um, well, yeah, yeah, you know, so, you know, that's what happened. You know, suddenly there it was, and suddenly there was this huge market. And it was a very interesting area to write for as well, because, uh, you know, it's a fascinating time of life, isn't it? You're changing from a child to an adult. Everyone remembers their teenage years, their friends, the music, you know, the thoughts, the politics, the... Uh, the things that you read, the things that are important to you, because they're seminal at that point. And so it's a, a fantastic area to write in and to have it to suddenly be able to write about it clearly and straightforwardly as opposed to sort of hedging and, you know, trying to trying to avoid offending uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the, moral, the more moralistic parents um, just meant that there were suddenly all sorts of things you could write that people hadn't really approached in that way before. So it was very exciting for a long time. It's interesting you're talking about ages and the ages that they're sold at because a 15-year-old reads a book in a completely different way to a, an 11-year-old. I mean, there's there's such a wide generational gap even between those. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, people talk about teenagers, but I mean, you know, the difference between being sort of 13 and 18 is is the most massive difference in your life. Exactly, it's huge. So, but you're writing for them. So, how much thought did you give to, I guess, the tone? in which you were writing, how long the sentences were? How much thought were you actually giving to the fact that a teenager would... Um, I, I, I didn't give very much thought to that um, specifically sort of stuff. I mean, um, I mean, basically, um, I, I, most of my stuff, not all of my stuff, but most of my stuff was for sort of older teenagers, sort of 15, 16, you know, and as time went by, it got for older and older teenagers. And really, you know, it, the thing is, if you think that you're writing for that age group, then, you know, you're, you're kind of a bit doomed, really. And for me, it was always to be writing about being that age. And if you do that, then, you know, you just write about being that age. And the story is set uh, with people and characters who are about that age going through the things that people that age tend to go through. So um, the rest of it follows automatically. You don't have to think about um, uh, how long your sentences are and how difficult your words are. Um, literary teenagers are perfectly capable of dealing with anything. But my my personal style has always been, you know, clear and simple. I, I, I don't want to talk down. I, I want to be able to sort of express the most complicated thoughts or the most difficult thoughts, um, any thought that I like. But I, I want, when you read it, it should just enter your brain without effort. I think that that's good writing to make difficult things clear. Yeah. Well, now you've got even older. This is your first... Um a book for adults specifically, which I think, you know, it's an iffy phrase, I think. But anyway, it's it's Loki. What made you sit 
back and decide that you wanted to write a book for adults? Um, well, well, you know, it's been on my mind for a good while, really. And uh, really, a lot of the books that I've done in the past could very easily have been for adults. It's just that, you know, I, I've had teenagers in them. Um, in this particular case, uh, Loki, of course, isn't a teenager. Uh, I've been, so I've been thinking about it for a while. And um, I, it was a bit of an experiment. I sat down and I thought, okay, let's, let's see what Loki thinks about this. And uh, the voice came quite quickly, Loki's voice, which is this sort of clever, quick, you know, energetic, um, apparently very honest voice, but uh, rather untrustworthy uh, it came very quickly and um, and off it went, you know. So, you know, I was very happy about that. So I just followed me nose, which is what I've always done uh, in my writing career, really. Let, let me take you back, just drop you back before that. Um, so before you're up and running, uh, what made you think of Loki? What was the very first moment that you remember the idea for writing about him? How did that come into your brain? Oh, I... I, I... I, I couldn't honestly say when the first idea came. I, I have done stuff on – I mean, I'm a big fan of mythology in general, and the Norse myths are my favourite mythology. And uh, Loki is my favourite Norse god. Um, so, you know, it's been on my mind for a long time. And for a few years now, I've been thinking, I'd like to do something, you know, I'd like to tell those stories. But there have been all sorts of various versions of those stories, you know, um, Kevin Crossley Holland, Neil Gaiman's done one in the past few years. The first one I came across was by a woman called Barbara Leone Picard. And they're kind of very similar in they've got this sort of third person, sort of rather distant, sort of folk tale tone. And I always felt there was, you know, must be a better way of doing it. But I wasn't quite sure what that was, how you could go about it. Uh, but I'd been thinking about it. I was doing um, an interesting thing with a, a friend of mine who has a little company doing um, uh, doing events, doing sort of theatre in school, uh, very interactive theatre he does. It's with a company called um, Alive and Kicking based in Leeds. And they do this wonderful stuff where, you know, when the kids are doing, say, Vikings or, um, you know, some period of history like this, they'll come in and, and do a sort of little interactive drama about it. And my friend Martin um, uh, would come in as Heimdall, the uh, the guardian of the Rainbow Bridge, which leads from uh, you know um, the other worlds to Asgard. And he'd say, "Oh, you know, Loki stole my sword, and now the frost giants are here, and I lack the courage, and I've got to get my courage back." And the kids have to instill him with courage. So he invited me to come along and be Loki and try and convince the kids that he didn't have any courage and that he was useless. And, the, and then the frost guards, the frost giants would come and kill everyone if I win, you see. And if he wins, he faces them down. So that was a lot of fun. I enjoyed being Loki. So I think that had something to do with me thinking, actually, you know, maybe I can, um, maybe I can actually uh, find a way of uh, actually, actually being, being Loki on paper. So I, th- I think that's probably, that was a big, that was a big push in the right direction, I think. You said that you don't, plan so what happens next after that initial idea what do you need to to, what do you like to know rather before you start tapping away how much thought will you give the whole thing well in the case of loki of course you're writing around stuff which has already existed so you know there is a myth about um you know the creation of man and woman there is the story of loki and Baldur. there are various other stories so so you're working around that um in in general um 
not with this book because there was already this uh, um, uh, the, the stories, so to speak, were already in place. Um, later on in the editing process, there was a, a, a you know trying to make it so that they were, as it were, telling one story. You know, so they were sort of working together as a book. That came later on. But when I'm normally doing a first draft, I will sit down and write uh, a sort of synopsis, just a couple of pages, just so I know where I'm going. Um, I'll usually um, um, develop a few key scenes. As you're wandering around turning the idea over in your mind, then sooner or later I will end up with a couple of characters in a situation or in a, in a piece of action. And these key scenes very often help sort of sum up something about the book. It's, uh, for me, a much better way of working than doing a detailed plan. And they are actors staging poses through through the novel to be. And usually, you know, they, they usually do and actually end up being in the book. And I kind of work from one to the other like that. Um, also, I will, following my dad's advice about make sure you know what you're going to do, I will write a note to myself before I leave my desk telling me what I'm going to be doing the next day. That's how it works. Yeah, just just to keep yourself switched on. You're talking about those drafts. Um, in the first draft, how much thought are you giving to the quality of the words or is it a case of just let's get it down and we can refine it later? Um, in the case of something like Loki, and indeed with, with every book, you, you, you are after some sort of a voice. You're after some sort of style. And um, you need to, I need to, to sort of hear that in my head. So it needs, and it needs to come out through my fingers. So I am concerned with that. Um, having said that, though, when the story is moving quickly, um, uh, what's on the page can, um, uh, can be a great pile of gobbledygook in the sense, <laughs> partly in the sense that my typing's crap. So uh, there'll be all sorts of misspellings and missing gaps and God knows what. And partly because, you know, you want to get it down quickly when it's moving sometimes. Um, and normally my routine is to sort of spend two or three days, um, you know, writing and then and then I'll go back and go over it and sort of tighten up the knocks and bolts. I always think of it like that. It's like you've built a sort of scaffolding structure. and It's a bit loose and wobbly. So you go over and you you tighten the nuts and bolts and you chuck out any bars which aren't necessary and decide which are the relevant ones and which which you don't want and that sort of thing. And um so, so that that, and when I get to the end of the book, that will be my first draft. But everything will have had a pass, at least a couple of passes. Um, just for the last question, there, Melvin. Uh, let me read you a, a small bit of the uh, press that I was sent about the book. <clears throat> uh, it says Loki is a heartfelt plea to overthrow the old gods of power and authority and instigate a new era ruled by love and intelligence. When you're uh, re revisiting a myth, a story that has been told a few times. How much thought do you give into, I guess because you are an author who has touched on social issues before, how much thought are you giving to making it relevant for an audience in 2022? Hmm. Well, it does very much depend on the book. Um, in the case of this book, um, Loki, uh, of course, is, um, is, is complaining about his loss and claiming that the old stories in which he's cast as the baddie are a load of rotten propaganda, but um, he is, even by his own admission, uh, a liar. And um, I suppose, although this, I mean, it isn't a Swiftian story in the sense that you can't pick on very much in it, which sort of links directly to um, 
all the lying bastards we've been surrounded with for the past few years. Um, I'm certainly kind of aware of uh, Trump and Johnson and, you know, the rest of them um, lying their teeth out at every available opportunity and promising us a better world uh, if we if we do it. So, you know, I was certainly aware of that. I remember there's a bit where Loki promises to build a big, beautiful wall. And I thought, all oh, right, okay, you know. But um, so, you know, I was aware of that in this book. I wasn't playing to it too much, um, but I was certainly very interested in, you know, the process of lying and the way of presenting. And um, uh, uh, what can I say? I had some pretty good examples laid at my feet during that period. Thank you so much to Melvin Burgess for coming on the show. I hope you really enjoyed it. There was a lot going on in there, a lot of like gems, I think, that you can take away in using your own writing day. And it's just interesting to hear how different people have done different things and, and why he made certain decisions that maybe you wouldn't have. I just I think it's really fascinating to to get quite a granular picture of how different writers work. His new novel is Loki, and you can grab a copy now. Next week, we're with Mark Poloski. Uh, chatting about his new book, Hack. It's about an online journalist investigating global conspiracies. He's done a lot of that himself, and now he's writing novels about it. You can hear from Mark next week on the show. In the meantime, support us, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Become a backer over there. Follow us on Twitter, we are at writerspod. You can get in touch, writersroutine.com. And I will see you next week with a brand new episode of Writers Routine. Until then, bye. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage of the French Open begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.